0: From Georgia Public Broadcasting, this is On Second Thought. I'm Virginia Prescott. Poker is a sport, so is chess, and now so is competitive gaming. Esports are, in fact, booming. Market watchers predict revenues to hit $1.5 billion by 2020. And Georgia high schools got the green light to form student esports last year. As the definition of athletes expands, so do demands to treat gaming-related illnesses. Dr. Vonda Wright is an orthopedic surgeon in Atlanta who partnered with game developers SkillShot Media to research and treat professional. Gamers, Dr. Wright has been in orthopedics and sports medicine for more than 20 years, with research and practice in women's health, aging, and musculoskeletal degeneration. I asked her why she took the plunge into the world of esports.
1: Well, you know what? Uh, I have to be honest with you. For a long time, being a doctor who believes that mobility is medicine and all the great research that's coming out that sitting will kill us, for a really long time. I wasn't a fan of esports. Hmm. And I would say, look at our children. Thirty percent of them are obese, seventeen percent have diabetes. But the more I looked into it and I and I thought about what the definition of athlete is. You know, we're playing towards a goal, we're doing it in groups, we're winning something, it's not so dissimilar from anything that we traditionally think of. And when and when I did a deeper dive and I saw that these kids have very short careers, five to seven years, and some of them are The world-class ones, athletes, I hesitated to say it, but you know what? That's what I've come to to really, truly believe. They are leaving their games with devastating, life-changing injuries the same way you see on a football field or a gymnastics mat. So I thought as an orthopedic surgeon and someone who likes to think ahead of my time, how am I going to get in front of this and really treat these young athletes like the athletes they are? So do you, do you find people kind of cocking their eyebrows saying, yeah. oh, they're athletes? Yes. You know what? And, and in the same way that I did for years, that is still the response. But the fact is people who are really looking ahead and smart and even people who really care about taking care of athletes will want to take care of the neck injuries that these kids are getting, to take care of the shoulder and elbow and hand, to not let six of the top gamers in the world get blood clots in their legs, Hmm. which can be devastating. So we really need to take all the amazing things we've learned for sports performance and transfer them to another group of athletes. And I am really interested in it now. And I think we have to do this. It's the right thing to do. So what are you doing? You are working on preventative yes. or treatment, both of those? So we know that in traditional athletes, there, that there are things we can do to not only help them with performance, but prevent injury. We mm-hmm. screen for injury. We look for limitations in joint mobility and in limitations of muscle flexibility. We look at overuse patterns. Uh, we look at nutrition, sports nutrition, sleep and rest cycles, and we do it really, really well. You know, we know how to create champions by squeezing performance out. What's amazing about eSports athletes is that none of this has been done before. Mm. Now, you think that eSports are just a bunch of kids sitting around in the basement For playing many, video games. many, many, hours and ordering pizza. Yes, but I'm telling you, when you really learn about it, there are single-person uh, games But there are team games, games where you have four guys and gals. It's another thing I love about esports playing together with one substitute. Well, that pretty much sounds like a team, right? Mm -hmm. And they're playing for long hours and they get overuse injuries. And so we are screening them for injury. We are doing fitness and endurance exercise. You know, some of them are already fitness people. Many of them are sitters. So we know from our literature that the stronger our body is, the stronger our brains are, and we're going to harness that knowledge Mm -hmm. for them. Yeah, I was going to ask, are they mostly physical injury? I mean, I often think of it
0: as a mental thing. I would Mm -hmm. not say that I'm one of those people who thinks, oh, gamers, they're just... You know what I mean?
1: But it is a mental test. It's both, right? So they play staring at a screen for very long periods of time. So there's mental fatigue. There's eye fatigue. But also... You know, there there are many platforms to play games. Some of them, uh, such as Twitch, is a different mechanism than just a keyboard and a mouse. But, mm-hmm. for instance, depending on how you hold your mouse, same for us at any right. desk we sit at, we either uh, make ourselves prone to carpal tunnel syndrome or we're not. And as I observe these gamers, some of them palm their mouse, which is much safer than clawing their mouths. So you can imagine hands in a claw, hands flat. And so as we identify movement patterns, part of what we're doing is researching who gets hurt and why. Because it's never been done before. And that's also what's so fascinating to me. is you, Because you're on the forefront we're of We're on the forefront of it. Yeah. We get to predict injury and train it out of them in the same way that we're doing it in traditional athletes. But maybe the thing that I love most about learning about gaming, is remember how we just said it's a bunch of kids sitting in a basement not talking to anybody, being maybe social outcasts. Now, since Georgia High School has designated gaming as a varsity sport, every school in Forsyth County has a gaming team. And when they went to state... And one of the high schools got second in states. Those kids who were previously isolated became the school heroes. Mm. And so now you raise up an entire new generation of people to celebrate. And when these kids go to college to play their sport, which now there's 31 colleges that give full rides, they come out as computer programmers and IT people and tech people. So it's just very positive all around from social to societal to let's help some kids uh, get more fit. Dr. der Wright is an orthopedic
0: surgeon and she's also a sports medicine expert. has been working for a long time in both practice and mm-hmm. also in research of sports medicine. We're talking about esports mm-hmm. and esports athletes getting injuries, how to prevent and how to treat. And you've been working with high risk studios in Alpharetta mm-hmm. and Skillshot Media. They develop games. Mm-hmm.
1: So tell me about this collaboration. Yes. And
0: is this feeding you with players? I
1: mean, how does this work? So you know what? For the first time in uh, Georgia, players have come to the studios in Alpharetta, 90 of them from around the world, mm. uh, on multiple teams playing a game called Smite and a game called Paladins, where in Smite you get to be a god. You know, you get to choose the god you are. <laughs> who doesn't are. like I know. That? <laughs> who doesn't want to be that? So teams of four with one substitute and 90 from across the world. So we formed this partnership with uh, Todd Harris, their um, their visionary leader. Say, in they're in Atlanta. Aren't they're they? in Alpharetta, mm-hmm. right in our backyard, actually. So um, I said to him, "Hey, let's treat your guys like the traditional athletes we always do." And he was so into it because he recognizes that these kids, by definition, are doing everything traditionals do. So we we had one screening where lots of the athletes came in, and we looked for injury patterns, just like I told you. What's weak? What's strong? What needs improvement? Um, We talk to them about their injury history, same thing we do with traditional athletes. And then one of the things we've committed to them is my own athletic trainer that I work with every day in my clinic is actually also a strength and conditioning coach. So once a week, we've decided he'll go. And just like we lead community outreach um, fitness programs we do a couple times a week Mm -hmm. in Forsyth, he's going once a week and really teaching them how to prevent injury and get stronger. And I'm really excited to see what we're going to get these kids to cuz probably the majority have really been sitting in a chair doing this game and could benefit from the from the stamina that we're going to provide them in a fitness. And this is a there's a lot of money at stake here for these well, professional players, isn't there? Well, you know what in the same way that other traditional athletes make a lot of money, these kids can too, you know mm-hmm. last year there was a huge competition here in Atlanta called Dream Hack, and the prize money was over a million dollars, which blows people 's minds when you think that the winner of the Boston Marathon only gets six figures, not seven figures right and now we 're not to the place like pro baseball where it 's one hundred and thirty two million for thirteen years, but you wait i mean it is I believe it 's going to happen, and I made the bold prediction in a group of athletic trainers and it got a bunch of groans that when gaming truly kicks kicks off as a sport coupled with our fascination with virtual reality which currently is possible to stick you and I can you imagine into a game uh, maybe maybe football as we know it will disappear mm. and it will become more of a virtual thing i mean wh- well, i know well, isn't know, looks, that weird it is i predicted and maybe f- uh, uh, 15 or 20 years, we're going to weigh physical injury versus virtual. And then if you and I get to actually stand next to one of the quarterbacks and, well, who wouldn't want to be in that game? And maybe we'll have to stop playing physical games. Not that I'm advocating that.
0: (laughs) If they can get me to do a (laughs) virtual workout, I'll be really, really
1: happy. Let's be clear about this audience. I'm I'm not advocating that we stop moving, but I think technology is going to drive the future of sports. Well, I mean,
0: look, we look back at gladiatorial sports and think,
1: how could they have done that? That was just
0: barbaric. But now we're looking at a whole other thing. Mm -hmm. But is it for, I mean, if you look at these games, there are announcers with their headsets, there are cheering crowds, there Mm -hmm. are big screens, there are timers. It is a sports event. But like professional athletes, the athletes they can be reluctant to talk about their injuries because sure. they might get benched.
1: Does that happen here? Of course, there's a lot of hiding of injury. There's there's gutting it through. There, you know, it's not easy to substitute an e- an esports athlete during a game. I mean, somebody's got to sit down in the chair, right. get up from the chair, and then the game goes on. So I've observed the same issues that we deal with in traditional athletes. We will in esports. One of the things I really want to affect in esports is the way they eat. Mm-hmm. so i 've observed many places that we think sugar is great from the brain for the brain and, and while glucose is the fuel of the brain, a wall of candy and and empty calories is not the way to optimize performance so you know getting these kids into a grocery store and helping them make smart food choices we call it performance foods mm-hmm. um, is is another aspect of this is there any data yet on
0: How many people are injured or how many injuries happen in this field?
1: You know, the good and bad of it is when we did a lit review to look for what's out there, we found two case studies. Now, to put that in perspective, something very common now like hip arthroscopy or ACL surgery has millions of citations. So that gives us the opportunity to really find out and publish what people need to look out for. Now, I have a little bit of inclining of what we're going to see because, you know, I'm an orthopedic surgeon. I'm an arthroscopist, which means I am looking at a screen all day, holding instruments in my hand, and the things that arthroscopic surgeons retire because of are some of the same things that these gamers huh. experience, like neck arthritis because you're hunched tunnel, over hunched all the time. Over. Our hands are playing our and game. How about thumbs, thumbs must get a lot of action. It, it depends on the on the platform they're playing. Especially if it's a joystick or a game console where you're actually doing the action with your thumbs. You know, there's actually something called phone and gamer's thumb that hand surgeons have to deal with. So it has to do with the joints becoming arthritic and worn out from overuse or the tendons that flow over the thumb joints. So, I mean, you're right on with what can happen. Mm -hmm. Some of the other things we're teaching is how to stretch out the tendons on the palm side of the hand Mm -hmm. because their hands are always in a palm down position. And so those... Muscles get really tight and the ones on the top get weak. And so just reverse. It's like sitting, you know, sitting all day will make your rear end and your core really weak. So um, reversing those motion patterns. And so so that's something also we're teaching them. I've introduced, can you play these games standing, like standing desk Uh, synopsis? Standing desk. Can you do it sitting on an exercise ball? Mm -hmm. And they've told me that that's just way too distracting. (laughs) But thinking through these options of, uh, of injury prevention so that we don't get to the place where some of the best South Korean players in the world uh, have had curating tendon pain that they just can't continue at a very young age, and we're going to try to prevent that. So you told us that you've turned
0: around in your vision mm-hmm. of esports as athletics. Mm-hmm. Do you play games
1: yourself? I do arthroscopy several times a week. <laughs> Which is not a game. I'm not sure that's that It's counts. not a game. But I'm hoping that the Smite players will teach me how, because I've got my eye on a certain goddess that I want to be.
2: <laughs> that's
0: so good. Vonda Wright, you are on the forefront. Thank you so much for telling us about it.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: Vonda Wright, an Atlanta-based orthopedic surgeon and sports medicine expert, researching, diagnosing, and treating esports injuries. Stay with us for a woman who covered some critical stories for the Washington Post. Now she's writing her own story. Dorothy Butler Gilliam, when On Second Thought Continues. Stay with us. From Georgia Public Broadcasting, this is On Second Thought. I'm Virginia Prescott. Dorothy Butler Gilliam was the first African-American female reporter hired by the Washington Post. The year was 1961. She was just 23 years old and had her work cut out for her as the civil rights and women's rights movements became pivotal news stories and defining chapters in American history. She retired from the Post in 2003, but this year published a new story, her own. Her memoir is called Trailblazer, a pioneering journalist fight to make the media look more like America. My colleague Leah Fleming recently spoke with Dorothy Butler-Gilliam about her book
2: and efforts to diversify newsrooms then and since. Let's talk about how did you wind up at the Washington Post all those years ago, 1961?
3: Well, I started in the black press, Mm -hmm. and uh, I started actually as a secretary. I was a, a college freshman in Louisville, Kentucky, where I grew up. And I went to get a job there at the Louisville Defender, the local black newspaper. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that uh, I did was just write letters for the editor. And then one day he came over and said, well, the society editor is ill, so we need you to go out and cover a story. And I thought, really? But I just took the dare, and there I went. Mm -hmm. And... um, I really fell in love with journalism because, personally, I really saw how it could expand my world. Uh, uh, just me, just covering, you know, the small black middle class in, in Louisville mm-hmm. showed me uh, how different people live. And uh, I learned so much, and he continued to let me write. Uh, I ended up wanting to go and major in journalism, so I went to Lincoln University in Jefferson City, Missouri. But... Um, I still had this dream, remember the civil rights movement was going on. It was before the women 's movement, but you know I, I was we were being pushed as as young black people to you know walk in some of these doors that were that that had not that had been previously closed mm-hmm. and uh, so i i went I went to the Columbia Journalism School after I finished undergraduate school, and um it was just routine for the post to come to Columbia to interview people. And the editor said to me, he said, well, we're interested in you, but you don't have any daily experience. And that was correct. He said, but if you ever happen to be in Washington, come by and meet our managing editor. Mm -hmm. Well, I just happened to be in Washington. (laughs) (laughs) That's a few weeks after that. And I called him and I said, I'm here. And he said, come on by. And um, the managing editor uh, asked why I was there. And I said, well, I'm about to go to Africa. And he found, that, you know, that very intriguing. You know, this young black woman mm. about to go to Africa in 1961. You know, Africa is just on the threshold of minor change, but the, you know, there was, it was uh, intriguing to him. He said, "Well, why don't you send us some stories from there?" And I did. Mm. I don't think they ever published them, but I think it let them know that I could write. Ah. And what were you going to Africa for? Just to experiment? Just to see? No, it was part of a, a program called Operation Crossroads Africa, started by a minister from Harlem, who s- several years before and what he did was he would take America American students, and they would work with an equal number of African students, and we did physical projects, f- physical labor. And the whole idea was a cultural exchange, but it was on an even basis because we were working together. And uh, so I spent two months in Kenya, and that was, uh, you know, one of the changing moments in my life.
2: So when you got back, that's when they hired you? That's
3: when they hired me, Uh after I had written some stories from Africa and sent them to them. Uh So what was that like
2: going into the newsroom uh, in your in your early days, your first days, and being the only black woman and one of just a, a small handful of people of color in the newsroom? Right. Well,
3: my the professor at Columbia had kind of prepared me for it. He said, you have so many handicaps, you'll probably make it. And I thought at first, you know, today that would be considered racist and, and yes, sexist, you know. Mm-hmm. But at that point, it was... Uh, you know, he. I think he was just trying to prepare me for the challenges, and so uh, I, you know, I I expected problems. Let's put it like that, mm-hmm. and I got them. Uh, you know, there were still, you know, some, the, the the night editor who called black deaths cheap murders. Um, we aren't going to put them in the paper. Those are just cheap murders, cheap deaths. Um, there, there were. Uh, just, you know, just doing the job, you mm-hmm. know, trying to cut, catch cabs, uh, because in, it was a very segregated city, which was one of the things that shocked me that the nation's capital was so racially segregated in 1961, but it was. And um, so just a, I, the challenge of getting stories on deadline, because, of course, in daily journalism, time is of the essence, mm-hmm. but... Uh, it was, it was challenging in that little ways. And, you know, your, the colleagues who would see me inside and be a little civil would ignore me on the streets. And at first it was just, you know, like it's just humiliating. I mean, what, what is it about me that, you know, and then I knew, of course, that it really wasn't about me. But, you know, it felt like it mm-hmm. uh, because of the racial uh, segregation mm-hmm. and, uh, of, the, of the city and of the nation. So we're living in a time right now where
2: mental health care has become more normalized. Before this time, though, before it became normal, did you ever think about talking to a mental health professional about what you were going through? Because certainly that does, what you experience, cause, I think, some kind of emotional trauma.
3: Mm -hmm. Yeah, it did. And uh, I did. I, I really was happy that I was able to to work, you know, with the therapist at times. Because mm-hmm. uh, didn't you
2: have anxiety attacks? I thought I, yeah, yeah, yeah. you experienced that. Yeah,
3: and I think, you know, in many ways that were, those were the early days uh, when you were able to really work with the therapist and kind of help understand what was going on that was beyond you, uh, uh, things for which you had no previous experience. Mm-hmm. And I would sometimes feel, you know, very upset that... Uh, I had to use the creative energy that I wanted to put into my stories uh you know really uh working in order to uh you know just uh do the job mm-hmm. and and do all that the the, the job uh you know, just demanded I mean I can remember going into uh, before I did some of the uh reporting that I really w- enjoyed most I would go into some of the white neighborhoods and interview people and you know I walked up to a door to go in with my notebook and all of this. And the doorman said, you can't come in this way. The maid's entrance is in the back. And, uh, you know, so I had started the morning out as a reporter. And before, before, you know, noon, I'm having to defend myself in terms of somebody who is, you know, putting me in another category. You know, I feel
2: like I'm sitting with a therapist at some point as a as a fellow black woman journalist, and, I, and I, I just have to ask you this because this is my experience. I come into the newsroom, I'm on the air reporting very painful things sometimes about uh, people that look like us and uh, their stories. And there are just times when I either want to cry or I want to scream. I'm so angry and I, you know, I have to uh, maintain, I have to divorce myself. But then I leave, you know, and I go home, and that's when, you know, the process begins of some sort of emotional healing to come back and do it again the next day. I'm wondering, what did you do back during those times? Because you were going through the Civil Rights Movement um, and the Women's Movement. You saw a lot of painful things and, and had to report on them. How, how did you handle that, and, and what advice do you have?
3: Well, uh, I think I didn't always handle it that well. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the things uh, that... Uh, did, I learned to kind of eat to painful emotions. You know, uh, that was not a healthy thing to do, but mm-hmm. I think a lot of people do that. You know, that business of uh, self-care in the midst of our business mm-hmm. is really important. And so I, was, I found other ways, you know, to um, express my emotions in terms of, as I said, you know, to a therapist. I didn't want to leave the business I'm
2: speaking with journalist and author Dorothy butler Gilliam. She was the first black woman reporter at The Washington Post, and she's here to talk about her new book. It's called Trailblazer, A Pioneering Journalist's Fight to Make the Media Look More Like America. So what are some of the challenges that, that you see in the media landscape today, in, in media newsrooms today?
3: Well, uh, one of those challenges is looking at the fact that the number of black women in journalists uh, that, that has, has really re- remained pretty stagnant in so many ways so so that all the diversity we've been pushing for you know still hasn't made had the impact mm-hmm. that uh, I hoped it would make and and I think we demonstrated it could make a lot of that that's complicated by many things one is the technology explosion and of course mm-hmm. the fact that you don't have as many newspapers uh uh you don't have uh as many uh people who are being employed by newspapers mm-hmm. um and so often when you know they offer buyouts etc those are some people you know take take the buyout mm-hmm. but um i think another thing that has me concerned today about uh the, the media and about diversity is the fact that from the highest positions in the land journalists are being so denigrated um and and uh journalism and truth telling is being so denigrated and i think for uh you know when when you hear reporters being called enemy of the people and you know these kinds of things that are so um just the opposite of what journalism is uh you know when i think of what is involved in investigative reporting you know, where you spend days and hours and months or could be even years, mm-hmm. you know digging for the facts of what's going on and being able to put that out there, you know, I think about my own f- colleagues at the time, Bob Woodward and Carl Bernstein, when they d- worked on the um oh watergate the, the the yeah uh, yeah, yeah watergate, mm-hmm. yeah, but it also it was almost two years before that story. Uh, kind of really materialized. I mean, they were still doing the digging. So I think um, when we have uh, the, the, the highest office in the land, you know, being turned against journalists and journalism in that way is different from what we are trained to do and what journalists want to do. They want to make a difference mm-hmm. and, and to be truth tellers. So how do we begin to make media look more like America?
2: Not, and not just people of color, but also there are poor people. There are people that don't
3: live in major cities. They live in rural areas. How do we do that? So I think one of the things is it's really important for those people in power to recognize how how crucial it is uh, to to have this diversity, and uh, i've been really excited to hear about a news lab that we have uh, you all have right here in georgia that's right that where you know young mm-hmm. people from diverse backgrounds are being taught to be investigative reporters uh, doing important work uh, and uh, so I think it it's what, it need, what we need is, you know, that continued uh, focus on them. Uh, I've been, I, I still work with an organization called the Maynard Institute. Uh, we have trained people over the years, and uh, even now we're trying to go back into newsrooms and make, make people uh, and editors more sensitive to the importance of diversity. Uh, so that's, that's a very crucial role. So as a Washington Post journalist and columnist, you told the
2: stories of others. And I'm wondering, what was this process like for you documenting your own story in this book?
3: Well, the most challenging uh, part of that was uh, when my editors kept saying, well, how did you feel about this Mm -hmm. and how did you feel about that? And one of the things about journalists is and that we move so quickly from story to story, m- much of the time. I mean, if you're doing a big investigative piece, that's one thing. But, uh, you know, we, c- we try not to let our feelings get in the way of what we're doing. Mm-hmm. And uh, so, you know, to have uh, the editor of the book uh, continually saying, you know, how did you feel about this or that or the other was, was a little challenging. Uh, It doesn't mean that, you know, you don't have emotions, but Mm -hmm. it does mean that, you know, you learn to work around that. Uh, It's interesting. I was watching uh, uh, book TV the other day, and uh, Bob Woodward was uh, actually interviewing two women who had written a book that really... uh, Laid out a lot of the sexual abuse of, of Harvey Weinstein, mm-hmm. and these women were talking. They how many years they had dug to really tell this story, but you know they they when the question was asked of them, you know how how did it affect your emotions when you were doing this digging? They basically said, well, you know we we weren't going to let that be part of the story. Mm. You know we were going to focus on the facts of the case and not yet that our emotions be a part of it. So it's kind of a journalistic <laughs> way of thinking mm-hmm. uh, that I could understand and identify with. Uh, so you didn't have to write a book about your journey, about yourself. Why did you do it, though? You know, I think after I retired from uh, my work, uh, my last, oh, fifteen 15 years, almost five at the Post and then 10 at George Washington University, I was trying to reach down into high schools mm-hmm. and... Uh, bring journalists into high school so we could find potential talent, but also help young people know that they have a voice and that their voice deserved to be heard. But how do you express that voice? And, you know, media is a a great way to do that. Mm -hmm. And um, uh, it was part of that journey that made me realize, you know, we need to just tell this story. Mm -hmm. And part of it was that I also wanted to show the role of black journalists in making what change we had made. And sometimes, you know, we, there's been regression. But uh, what I've tried to do in the book is also just a lot of the, you know, incorporate a lot of the history of, of, of um, you know, how black journalists started programs and expanded them and fought for them. And uh, so... I wanted to tell that story that I hadn't seen told before.
0: GPB's Morning Edition host Leah Fleming there, speaking with the pioneering journalist and author Dorothy Butler-Gilliam. Coming up, the Bitter Southerner podcast is back with its second season. We'll get a preview and add a couple of more books to our Southern reading list with Waffle House Poet Laureate Karen Head. I'm Virginia Prescott. Stick around for more of On Second Thought. We're back with On Second Thought from GBB. I'm Virginia Prescott. The Bitter Southerner podcast is back. Its season two premiere is freshly out wherever you get your podcasts. Host Chuck Reese got some help kicking off the first episode from the so-called liberal rednecks of the comedy circuit. Trey Crowder, Drew Morgan, and Cory Wren Forrester travel the U.S. as the well-read, that's R-E-D, comedy tour. And they need no further introduction because Chuck let them introduce themselves.
4: I'm Trey Crowder, I grew up in Salina, Tennessee, and uh, one thing that everybody in Salina liked to say because it was true was that we have more liquor stores and traffic lights.
5: My name is Drew Morgan, and I'm from Sunbright, Tennessee, and the uh, fake myth that everyone knows is fake but still spread to little kids is that uh, A black man was up on Pea Ridge taking a pee, and that's how it got its name. And the sun came up, and he said, Sunbright. And I have no idea why he was black in the myth. There are no black people there.
6: My name is Corey Ryan Forster. I grew up in Chickamauga, Georgia. Chickamauga, Georgia is famous for the Battle of Chickamauga, which is a battle that the South won. And if you don't believe me, just look at every bumper sticker ever.
0: The first episode of the second season is about accents. And here's Trey Crowder talking about how his accent was perceived when he moved to Southern California.
4: I get uh, skepticism quite a bit, which has always been funny to me. Like people don't think that they think I'm putting on or it's a, like a part of an act or a gimmick or something that I don't actually talk like this. Because it's hard for them to believe that somebody who sounds like me could have, you know, found California. <laughs> Definitely people are like freaked out by it sometimes because it's so uncommon out there, but also the negative connotations that a lot of people have for it. So anyway, that's my take on it. I don't know how Drew's felt about it. I have a different bit about the receiving of my specific
5: accent, which is Appalachian. That's how you say that word. And uh, it's about how people are afraid of that and they're sort of upset or they're pining for what they call the pretty or nice southern accent. And I think it's very interesting that people are more afraid of mine and Trey's accent than they are Strom Thurman's. And they think mine is racism and oppression, and mm-hmm. it's ironic how flip-flopped the truth right. is there.
6: <laughs> right. To echo what those guys said, like it's, it's pretty crazy. Like People that I meet in this industry who have known us for a while— uh, and know the whole whole deal. Like they're like you're the liberal rednecks. We you know we understand what you're trying to do. You're trying to show us that like everybody with that accent isn't an idiot. But it still seems like they're confu- They're still confused about it. Like any time I say anything decently smart, they're like I just can't believe that just came out of you. And uh, you know it's insulting, but it's also kind of a cheat code. Yeah. You know in a way like it it feels like. I can get away with a lot because when I do something smart, it seems extra smart.
7: Well, I mean, my, my experience, the first time I moved up to New York city, the way I handled it up there, like when someone would marvel at the fact that I use the word y'all, I would try to make the point that y'all is a needed word because the English language has a second person, singular pronoun, you. It has a second person, plural pronoun that is also you the second person plural should be y'all yeah, <laughs>
4: right. yeah uh i i I personally feel like uh people have started to come around on y'all as a word like i feel oh, yeah. like i've seen people not southerners on the internet and wherever else just out in the world uh, sort of lauding the word y'all the way you because it's also you know gender inclusive right yeah. which is a big plus nowadays oh yeah. they they gonna take it right yeah yeah, yeah. Right. it will it will be y'alls alls yeah. eventually it'll, it'll be their word well we said yuns in Salina we we said y'all also we yeah said but we said yuns in Salina as well
7: well let me ask y'all this now how do your southern audiences react to all this enlightened liberalism that y'all guys have uh, coming
4: out of mouths like y'all's? Well, the people that, and I've said this a lot, but I mean, it's true, I believe this. The people that, like, there are plenty of people in the South who sound like us who, if they are aware of us at all, they are not fans. The people that actually do come to the show, like buy a ticket and show up, are nearly across the board already on board with us to begin with so like it's not surprising or shocking to them if it was just a general southern audience like like if y'all were opening for foxworthy or something right sure yeah, yeah. it would be uh, we, and we've all had that experience too because we all came up in the south and nobody knew who we were we were for most of that time and we go up in front of general southern audiences and i mean yeah you can shock and upset some people for sure <laughs> Some people get offended at some of my material or whatever, but I also always felt like they would, even if they weren't on board with it, the people in the audience who weren't, they would let me get away with it yeah. for a little bit because of the way I sounded because yeah. they were like well he's one of us so I had like a longer leash like if a New York comic had been there saying the exact same jokes I was saying they would no. have hated yeah me. I mean I've seen that happen but they gave me a little bit of grace because I they were like well he's one of us you know for a little bit sure believe me I could still lose them. <laughs> most, yeah.
5: most of my jokes coming up that were like that were religious uh, my dad's a preacher I grew up in the church it caused me a lot of uh, existential issues and I you know or oh, it did it? Whew. And uh, <laughs> I feel like honestly, it was everybody, and it, and that still can do it to people. Like even our audiences in the South, it's just it's inside us. If you were raised in the church and you hear someone speaking anything negative about that, even if you agree with it, I think some part of a lot of people are like you ain't supposed to say this. Yeah, yeah. That's I guess part of why I'm interested in those jokes. But there's no way around that. I think we're re- well received in the South now. Um Chuck, not just because of what Trey was saying of like, we've been sought out, but I mean, if you go to our shows in the South, it's all the people that we have known exist, but the world, including good-hearted liberal people in Connecticut or whatever, don't think about existing. Liberal people, you know, minorities, queer Southerners, like all those folks are at our show, and I think it's, it's not just like, oh, they're cool with it, like that's part of why they're there. Well, speaking
7: of, of, you know, how y'all have played with that accent in your comedy, and I know I've told y'all this individually, but the, the, the skits you guys did for Comedy Central uh, are just brilliant, man. And like the one about the restaurant.
6: You're from Boone, North Carolina, and you made this menu? Yes. What year did Doc Watson die? What? What percentage Cherokee are you? 1 16th on my mama's side, 1 8th on my daddy's side. Vinegar or ketchup based barbecue? Both. How much sugar goes in sweet tea? Till it's sweet enough. Dolly Parton or. Dolly, you know, unless the preacher's coming over, then we gotta pretend like it's Jesus for a minute, but. Uh, when you were punished as a kid, where would your parents hit you? Home,
7: school, church, anywhere with sticks, really. That's a phenomenal answer. Mm hmm. Well I mean, like when you you know what 's different about writing sketch comedy that builds on that, or does that come easy to you all
5: we 're learning as we go that yeah. that particular one was based on a bit that I did, but i and it worked. I have found with other bits that that doesn 't always work and it doesn 't always translate as well. That particular bit had a was a story it started out as a story, me and Andy were in a restaurant, and I got mad about them having vegan grits. That was the bit. I mean, one thing I specifically did on that sketch, and I'll try to do as long as Comedy Central will let me, you know, our goal is to get these out to more people, grow our audience, et cetera, et cetera. But I put what I call little little uh, redneck bat signals out there. I mean, the references to Dale Earnhardt and Dolly Parton are to be funny, but also because I'm hoping people see that and go. And, and when you look in the comments of that one, it worked. I mean, people are being like, oh, my God, I, I'm from the South and they nailed it. And, and like that is what I was Do, going yeah, for. Doc Watson specifically,
6: because there's, you know, a lot of people... That's a deep cut. That's a deep cut. Yeah, a lot of people not from the South still get Earnhardt and Dolly, mm-hmm. but the people who were, when we threw, Doc Watson was in there, people were like, okay, these dudes are legit. <laughs> I can see any liberal elite writer going, I'll put Dolly Part, but you put Doc Watson and talking about when Skinner's plane gets, gets, you know, uh, what,
5: crashed, gets crashed. Well, Trey added a joke to that when it was, um, what was it about snakes you said? Uh, breeding illegal reptiles? Yeah. yeah. I, I'm, I'm really uh, showing myself here how much I care about the comment section. But I, I, one of the ones I saw was I saw like two or three people being like, I legit had an uncle who got who had snake illegal snakes. I legit. <laughs> Nobody got arrested or anything. But like everyone had that weird dude in their neighborhood who was like, yeah, you can't get these at the store now. Yeah, everybody got I, a snake guy. Yeah, you got to have a snake guy. <laughs> <laughs> uh,
7: what do you want people all over the country because we got people who listen to this in every state of the union we got people who listen to it in europe and uh in asia what should those folks know when they hear a southern accent
5: i want someone to hear a southern accent and know that um that we are as diverse we're not a monolith we are as diverse as any culture that when you talk to that person, you might get something you expect. You might get something completely out of left field. If you talk to them for very long, you'll
4: find out that, you know, it's not going to be everything that you expect. Like, no matter which angle you're coming at it from, I think one thing most people can agree that you can assume when you hear a Southern accent is that, you know, we're a pretty good time. Yeah. You're going to be entertained one way or another, even if it's, you, you know, from the, like, Connecticut high horse perspective of like you know uh we're zoo animals sure. or whatever or just you know you want to have a good time either way you're probably going to enjoy it uh right you know <laughs> if you start picking the brain of a southerner <laughs> but I,
5: I, think. I, I, I but I do wish people would sure man there's honey boo boo uh, yeah we got to own that but I also wish it would be William Faulkner an outcast you know right like, think about those things I don't want to sound too <laughs> sappy here but just you know you're talking to a
6: human being. So like, yeah, we can be simple folks, but that doesn't make us stupid and expect to hear a story because everybody in the South has one. If you hear my accent, you know, there's, there's just more to it. And I just wish that we wouldn't get treated like, you know, Ned Beatty and deliverance.
0: Trey Crowder, Drew Morgan and Corey Ryan Forrester. They're traveling the U S on the well-read comedy tour. They're speaking there with Chuck Reese for GPB's bitter southerner podcast. You can subscribe to the podcast at gpb.org slash podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Karen Head is Executive Director of the Communication Center at Georgia Tech and Waffle House Poet Laureate. That's right. The designation came after the Waffle House Foundation-funded poetry tour project for underserved Georgia high school students. Karen's newest collection of poems is called Lost on Purpose. She stopped by on Second Thought to share her recommendations for our Southern reading list. We invite authors and readers to
8: talk about books that define and reflect the South. I think that often people think quite a lot about Southern fiction, but they don't necessarily think about Southern poetry. And we have a long history of really fantastic poets in the South. My name is Karen Head. I am a professor at the Georgia Institute of Technology. I'm also the editor of the International Poetry Journal, the Atlanta Review. And as of late, I think the thing I'm sort of most known for is I am the Poet Laureate of Waffle House. The first book that I chose for the Southern Reading list is a little bit of a cheat, It's actually a series of poetry anthologies called the Southern Poetry Anthology. They are in their eighth edition of that. But if I had to pick one of them, I'm going to pick the Georgia volume, volume five. And what I love about the Southern Poetry Anthology series is this series, um, because it's multi-volumes, does a great job of going state by state and telling the history of that. Um, so you get a lot of poets who you know, are more historical, but you also get contemporary poets. And so it's a great way to dip your toes in, uh, read a handful of poems by different poets and, uh, and find out who you, who you really like and want to go investigate more. So the, as I said, the series is now in eight volumes. So there are quite a number of states that have been done. I think South Carolina, Tennessee, Texas, uh, Appalachia. Um, so um, yeah, I think it's uh, I think it's a great it's a great collection to check out. So the second book that I chose I chose because um, Pride is actually a, a big event here in Atlanta, and I uh, wanted to have a diversity pick on my list, and I decided to go with uh, a gay author. Um, his name is Colin Kelly. Uh, His collection, Render, which came out from Slipping Rivalry Press, um, is a fantastic collection of poems about growing up in the South. Um, He's from just south of Atlanta um, in Fayetteville. And it also has uh, a reference to the uh, artist-photographer Sally Mann, and there is um, an exhibition of her work that's going to be at the High Museum, and he's been invited to... Come and read poems, and so it seemed like uh, an excellent collection for people to be checking out right now. Because you can also go to the high and see Sally Mann's work, and um, he um, he has a, a little bit a little bit more uh, popular culture feel to a lot of his work, and I think that makes it sometimes a bit more accessible to people. He's he's a poet, but he's also a really great storyteller, and so um, we get a lot of flavor of. Of place and time and popular culture throughout his work, and so um, I'm a I'm a big fan. As I said earlier, everybody knows what Southern fiction means. When you say Southern fiction, a lot of of, of names come into your mind. I mean, you know, most people have heard of, of Faulkner or Flannery O'Connor, or um, even more contemporarily, someone like Kay Gibbons or. Uh, Harry Cruz or Tom Wolfe. I mean, it's 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 a fixed thing. I mean, you, you know, Eudora Welty. They're just you can come up with name after name after name, and and I think that Southern fiction gets a lot of attention. What makes me a little bit sad is that if you say Southern poetry, I don't think people have as much a sense of what that means or how important it, it has been. Uh, I think that a lot of people miss out on that, and so I try to promote it as much as possible. And of course, being and identifying as a Southern poet myself, I think, you know, obviously I, I have a, a, personal, a personal stake in all of that. That was Atlanta poet and
0: Waffle House poet laureate, Karen Head. She's executive director of the Communication Center at Georgia Tech. And by the way, the Sally Mann exhibition that Karen mentioned is on display at the High Museum of Art until February. You can find more of our Southern Reading List series at gbbnews.org. On Second Thought is produced by Amelia Brock, LaRaven Taylor, Priya Mahadevan, and Jake Troyer. Jesse Neiswanger is our engineer. Our interns are Jessica Lowell and Alexis Thomason. Don Smith is our dean of grammar. Amy Kylie is senior producer. Executive producer is Mary Lynn Ryan. Our theme song is by Alex Crispin and Marshall Ruffin. I'm Virginia Prescott. We won't be on tomorrow because of the impeachment inquiry hearings going on, but you can catch us anytime with the On Second Thought podcast from GBB.